Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here for the new, on behalf of the New Books Network, the Archaeology Channel. I'm here with Emeritus Head Archaeologist of the Jamestown Rediscovery Project, William M. Kelso. We're going to be discussing his new book, Jamestown, The Truth Revealed, More Remarkable Discoveries from the Lead Archaeologist to Unearth the Secrets of America's Birthplace. Welcome, Dr. Kelso. Thank you. Um, so first off, uh, I'd like to uh, discuss a little bit about uh, the cover of the book. Uh, did you choose the cover? Or was the cover assembled? Or, or it's, there's a face and a map on the cover. Can you, can you discuss a little bit, touch a little bit of, uh, on how you selected the cover? Well, the cover uh, includes a little strip of a map that was made of Virginia, remarkably accurate, uh, in uh, 1608 made by Captain John Smith, who people have heard about, I believe. Uh, and it shows all the, uh, actually, a, a uh, 48 different Indian towns and villages, uh, and also the location of Jamestown in uh, the whole south, eastern section of what is now the state of Virginia. Uh, and then the uh, other part of the cover uh, is a reconstruction of a skull that was found, I can get into more detail later, but um, of what I believe is uh, sound evidence that there was, uh, this is a a victim of of, um, cannibalism during the darkest hours of Jamestown uh, time period. And um, her name, we gave her name as Jane, and this is a reconstruction based on that, on that, that skull. So how did you come to be involved with Jamestown rediscovery and the fort excavations, especially after evidence for such a fort had purportedly washed away into the James? My interest and finally uh, um, impetus to start a project looking for this so-called lost fort began over 50 years ago uh, when I first came to the area and I wanted to walk in the footsteps of John Smith and Pocahontas in this fort. So I went to Jamestown Island, and it was known that that's where the fort had been. Uh, and I went looking <laughs> for it and come to find out uh, a park ranger, a national park ranger was there. And I said, where is it? And he points out in the river. Said, well, what happened? He said, well, the shoreline eroded and it's gone. So you can't really walk it unless you don't get wet. <laughs> so I... Um, very disappointed. Uh, but I looked around and there was a bank that, uh, uh, next to the river, uh, an earthen bank had been washed, had been uh, actually uh, shaved back uh, to show different layers of soil. And um, the top was a, on, on the top layer was this huge pile of clay that was put there uh, to build a Civil War earthen fort in 1860s. Oh, that's interesting. 
And then under that was a dark layer that had objects sticking out. And I, I was not an archaeologist at the time at all. I was a student in history. Uh, but I saw it looked like uh, colonial period things sticking out with a dark layer. And then under that were um, uh, stone tools. Uh, and, it's, and the labels on that were obviously Civil War. Then there was this colonial period. And then there's uh, before that. Uh, the prehistoric uh, Virginia Indian period. So I looked at that dark layer and it just caught my eye and I looked at the ranger. I said, well, what about this dark layer? What's this? What's this mean? And he looked at me and kind of, you could tell, yeah, I can't really answer. I'm not really sure what that is. So I thought to myself, maybe someday some archaeologist could come along and find out what that layer means. And 30 years later, I had become an archaeologist and had studied Virginia and other uh, colonial sites. Uh, And I thought, well, on the horizon was the 400th anniversary of the settlement of Jamestown. And it was first settled in 1607. So uh, we're looking at uh, 2007. Uh, And this was in uh, early 90s, or actually early 80s. I thought, well put together a project and and see if that dark layer has anything to do with it. Well, as it turned out, that was just the tip of the iceberg of the fort site being eroded away, but not, but as it turned out, 90% was there. So my connection came in as I became an archeologist working at Colonial Williamsburg for Ivor Noel Hume, the British archeologist. Uh, foremost, uh, during my great fortune, because he knew what he was doing. And he had written a book uh, called uh, Here Lies Virginia, good title, uh, in, in the 1960s. And I read it, and in one page it said, some burials had been eroded away out of that same bank. They weren't showing when I was looking at it. Uh, and he concluded that uh, that was a sign that perhaps somewhere in this vicinity, we, the, the fort would survive. Then through the years, he changed his mind, and then most everybody lined up and said, you know, forget it, you can't find it, uh, the fort. But um, I thought, well, somebody's got to give it a shot. And so I, this is a long story. <laughs> I'm, I can't read the whole book to you, but um, the that site is part of a National Park Service site, but it's not, but it's privately owned, and so I went to the owners and I said, look, I want to take a look and find this fort. And they had some stipulations and didn't took 10 years to say, oh, well, why don't you try it? So in 1994, the excavations began. For our listeners, please briefly describe the provenance and impulses of the Virginia com- company and the 1606 to 07 Jamestown migrants. Well, I guess you must mean um, their goals and objectives, the company. Uh, yes, and uh, the same with the, with the, uh, the people that they sent. Well, uh, this in, uh, in the late 16th century, early 17th century in England, uh, people were beginning to f- uh, form uh, joint stock trading companies uh, where not one person had to go out and venture all his money to, to, to go in an, an unknown place. Uh, to, to find uh, to make a profit with every found whatever he found so um, the idea was and I think a man by the name of K 
Captain Bartholomew Gosnold. I want to come up. He'll come up later. Uh, had the idea. Had he, he'd already tried to put a colony in what became New England in 1602, and he and he thought and then that was too far north, too cold up there. But he he got in, uh, an idea to uh, to set up a company. I mean, to set up a, a colony for the company in Southern Virginia, uh, which was where the first um, English settlement really was put in the James Fort. Uh, and he got together Smith and uh, some other leading uh, people. And uh, he also had connections with the crown uh, and was given a charter in order to settle because King claimed the whole North, North American coast, basically uh, north of the Spanish Florida. So um, the, he, they were granted this uh, right to do that because one of, uh, of uh, Gosnell's relatives was a favored courtier with J- King James. So good, okay, you got the charter, and then uh, they needed the money, and another uh, acquaintance, a relative, was a very rich merchant who had made money on these joint stock companies going actually into uh, going east of, of uh, England. So um, he got the money in order to outfit three ships, 104 uh, settlers, and they uh, were basically employees of the Virginia Company that was ruled by a council, uh, and they sent with, with them one governor. Uh, to run it, to run the place, and they were to go and find all the gold and become rich quick. Um, and once they got to Virginia, but anyway, they had to find a place, and that's another story. If you can, please uh, concisely narrate, tell the story of the early history of Jamestown, perhaps beginning with the uh, Blackwell departure, um, as well as a, your your critical reassessment of descriptions and three maps from the earliest years of the colony and perhaps addressing the construction and reconstruction of James Fort, Native Encounters, diverse others, and the starving times. Well, uh, in, 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 um, in December of 1608, the three ships that were outfitted for the company with their hundred and just over 100 uh, uh, settlers that were going to stay and establish this colony uh, uh, left uh, uh, just uh, – East of London from Blackwell Stairs. Uh, And they had figured it would take them five or six weeks to get to Virginia. This was not the first time Virginia had ever been discovered by sailors. And so um, uh, the problem was that the winds weren't right. And so it wound up taking them five months to get there. So on the way, they're using up their provisions. Uh, just to stay alive in, the, in five months and got to, to Virginia and they were told to go a hundred miles inland to hide out, hide out from the Spanish who were not too excited about the fact that this other uh, European country was going to uh, uh, claim land in, in their Florida, as they called it. So, <clears throat> so they were instructed to go a hundred miles inland and, and they immediately tried <laughs> to go in upriver, uh, uh, and of a major river, which James River is a major river, and you go in the Chesapeake Bay is a, an amazing 
natural port. So uh, they found out really quickly that you can't go 100 miles uh, with these ships because there's uh, waterfalls at Richmond, which is only 50 miles. So the backup plan was to find some island that was strong by nature. And what that meant was he's got this water around an island that there will be defensible against the Spanish. Uh, and what it turned out, it, it needed to be defensible against the um, uh, uh, 15,000 uh, Powhatan Virginia Indians that were living all, all over the place uh, in, in the town, but or in the, in that in that region. So um, anyway, they so the, the geography of the James River, and that's what they called it. Although they it had been uh, by the Indians called it the Powhatan River. Anyway, it became the James River to the English, and they settled, they found this, this one island, basically an island, uh, that was about the right size, and there, there aren't others to choose from along the James. So it became Jamestown Island, and there they, uh, after scouting around for two, two, uh, two or three weeks, uh, they didn't just sort of jump ship when they saw the land. I mean, they, they, they studied, and they had instructions from the company. So they went to uh, the island, and on May 13, 1607, they unload the ships, and they said the reason we chose this was because we could tie the ships to the shore from the channel. Well, that's another story why people thought the fort was lost. Everyone assumed they built the fort right there, but they didn't. Uh, as it turned out, they marched up to the highest ground. So, okay, there, right away, there are some skirmishing kinds of, kinds of skirmishes with the local Virginia Indians. And they were also instructed to, to, to not to settle in a place where you wouldn't have any Indians living between you and the, and the ocean, which you can't do. I mean, they, they had gone by several villages just to get there. So anyway, um, they were then under attack. Uh, 20 of the men went up the river to look for gold and uh, 20 were assigned to build a fort. And, and they had to do it quickly because they, they had one major attack. So in only 19 days, they put up about an acre, they put an acre behind palisades that were called that side-by-side logs planted in the ground. <clears throat> uh, logs that had to be cut and dragged and put up and, uh, so it was really a Herculean effort uh, to get this fort up that quickly. But they had incentive because they were under it. Uh, the Indians were firing whenever they could, um, you know, arrows. And so, <clears throat> so James Fort existed, but soon after that, you've got a rash of deaths. And one of the, uh, the, the journal writers of the time said, just the stress, the stress of putting up that fort in, in the Virginia summer, which is could have been a hundred degrees humidity, and these guys are dressed in wool, if not armor. Um, the fact that they could put that up that quickly, uh, many began to die, and they died of starvation and bad water and illnesses. Uh, so that by <clears throat> the end of August, uh, they were down to 30, 38 out of the hundred. And four, they were technically. 38 only left alive. Uh, but the fall, things got better. And then more ships came in. 
there, there is another almost uh, time when the colony is going to fail completely a couple years later. And we'll talk about that too. I think uh, in the, in the, it's in the book in there too that it had such an effect uh, on the archaeological site. Uh, uh, but it, it, it lived on as long as J- John Smith was there. Then he leaves in 1609 and too many people came over without food and then they had this huge starving time. Uh, going, uh, I guess, ahead to 1990, going back to 1994, I guess, going ahead, what factors, including extant maps, led you to make an educated guess as to the site of the fort for quilt method excavations? And who joined you in these excavations? Well, I had the luxury of at least a year to, to plan out how I was going to start, how I was going to do this and where to start. Uh, and because we had 22 acres to find this fort, and that's a lot of, that's a big area when you have a small shovel. So um, I, I know there were there were three maps that vaguely, I thought vaguely uh, locate, shows where the fort was located on this, this uh, uh, not very, not very uh, uh, well drawn map of Jamestown. In fact, one of the maps shows all of south southeastern North Carolina and what became North Carolina and Virginia. So it was just this little symbol, uh, and it was <clears throat> in another one the same way. It was just this little tiny symbol. It looked like a dot to me, uh, and it looked like it was on the part of the island that probably they could have washed away. So I was a little uncertain you know, when we began, but. It was clear that it was on the western end of this 1,500-acre Jamestown Island. So there are then descriptions of the fort, but not drawings. Well, the other map, by the other map, by the way, if, if I had, a, had been able to read that like I've read it since, it would have been, you know, like, no problem. You know that's where the fort is. But anyway... Um, you couldn't do it unless you saw the original, which was in the British Library. Anyway, uh, that lo- that's the location. Then uh, there, the one above ground remnant of Jamestown uh, built environment is the church, a church tower from the 17th century. Everything else went down, and there was a, a, a fairly steady population in the town after it did make it and so on, but that's another story. Anyway, I thought, well, uh, yeah, maybe they didn't build where they could, they being the settlers, tie the ships to the trees. Maybe they, they, they went somewhere else and maybe on this high ground. And they did have a church that was recorded and that was in the record. So um, maybe that tower has something to do with the church. And I'd been traveling some in, in Europe and every church, if you go under, down in, down in, in not the basement, but underneath them, especially in Israel, um, there are e- e- eons of churches that were built there and rebuilt there and rebuilt. So I thought, well, uh, maybe the original church was somewhere near this tower, and maybe the towers are that old. So um, taking the one description that gives some dimensions to a triangular enclosure, I made a drawing of it uh, and scaled it to to the land and put the tower in the middle, you know, and 
thought, well, maybe if we dig down between the tower and the river, we might see some evidence of that original fort, which lasted uh, 20 years, first 20 years. And so the first shovel goes in the ground about here. You know, I said, well, tower's there. The riverfront is along here. And I, I was consulting with Noel Hume at the time, too. And he was saying, well, you know, I think it's somewhere on the island, but another place way away from there. But he said, we ought to check this out. I said, okay. Uh, so put the shovel in the ground near the shore, uh, the river shore, about far enough from the tower to say, well, if it's a one-acre fort, then this would be about as far as it, it could be. And uh, and I was able to uh, get a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to support uh, the excavations for probably, it would be two years. And I was able to hire for a short time all of the best archaeologists I knew, uh, senior level, just to come for a week or two, and they, they did. And as it turned out, the wall was almost where we put the first shovel in the ground, the south wall along the river. But where we did put the shovel in the ground, began to find objects, military objects, coins old enough. So it's military. It looks all military stuff, mostly military stuff. And so that was, that was a good deal. But we had, a lot, we had 10... Ten more years of excavations to be able to prove that that's the fort. So, what uh, postal soil material culture footprints indicated that by '96, uh, your team had discovered uh, the South Palisade trench wall and the curved bulwark trench and its accompanying ditch? Um, why were these uh, f- footprints, um, as well as early dates? and the military nature of the artifacts compelling evidence that you had actually found the remnants of James Fort. And if possible, can you uh, uh, briefly provide examples of such artifacts? Well, let me back up this couple of questions there. One is um, what would we find that would tell us that here's a fort wall and here's a fort building and all, if, if in fact they were all made out of wood. And that was the challenge. But here in this in this region, there is a level we call it subsoil. It's clay that was really at the bottom of a millions of year old ocean had been on the site, you know, millions of years before. So, and that's under everything. And that's just a uniform color of soil. Well, we I knew that this is palisaded fort, so you'd have to have a trench deep enough to plant these upright logs side by side. That's a palisade to make a wall. Uh, And then wherever the colonists dug deep enough to go into that subsoil clay, it changes the uh, mono, uh, uh, mono color of it all. And it's mixed. It's mixed soil. You can't put it back the same way it was. So, all of James Fort really, most of, no, I say most of it is not, not, not masonry. You don't, we're not finding solid foundations with, with two exceptions, but we're, but we found where the, this clay had been disturbed in a pattern. So the whole um, key to this was pattern recognition. If we looked and we saw a, a, a discoloration 
that's about a foot wide and it's going, uh, it, it was found that it ran across, not ran, but that it traversed across an area where we dug down to the soil, dig the next trench or the next uh, square. And I often said, this is like, you know, building a quilt. If you, if you, you began to one, uh, one patch of a quilt, you can't see the pattern. <clears throat> but if you add them all together, you begin to see that there's a pattern to it. So uh, we would what we call follow these stains, these soil stains that were created by colonial disturbances. And following that for about 10 years, because it, it takes, you can't just rip out, rip the soil apart. You know, you've got to go very carefully and it takes, it takes experience to be able to see these soil stains. Then that was telling us, and I thought the best thing to do is to find the triangular wall. If it was triangular, I mean, that's triangular what? You know, one said it's triangular wise. Well, what does that mean? But anyway, that it would make a triangle. So I felt that if we had to find the three sides um, by following these soil stains. Uh, uh, and then we would, then it would confine the space to a diggable um, space that you could actually uncover, especially by 2007. So, and there was a big anniversary coming up. So, okay, uh, that's what we did. And it took about 10 years to connect all of those dots and dashes. For, basically, some are, then some are post holes where, where somebody wants to put up a, put a post in the ground and not a line like you would on the wall. Uh, then a hole is dug bigger than a post, of course. Deep down, set the post in it, and then fill the, put the fill back around it. And that makes a stain. And then they're, so they began to build buildings based on these posts in the ground, spaced out every 10 feet you know, or whatever they were. Uh, and then once it makes a rectangle, that's a pattern. And you began to see that this is where a building stood. Uh, and also, uh, another place could be a big discoloration with a lot of artifacts sticking out. And you dig down, it's a well or a cellar in a building or and so on. So um, that was the key. And it's, it's, it's following these soil stains. Uh, and then in the artifacts that are buried when the post goes up or when it's pulled out or when the palisades stood, were put in, and they can be dated to a certain period, and that's done by um, analogy, by looking at other collections that are dated and so on. And, it, and fortunately, we found a few dated coins, which is, gives us a real exact date. Uh, then we can see what dates to the fort. And Jamestown was occupied, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, uh, well into the Civil War, uh, and and up to the present, it became a park, and there's all kinds of deposits from these different time periods. So, but our goal was to find the earliest, which would be not necessarily the deepest buried, but the, the um, these disturbances that are sealed over, as we say, are filled over by uh, uh, Civil War Fort, for example. Uh, under that would be. Uh, actually, the black layer, which was a, there was plowing out here after you get into the late 18th and early 19th century at Jamestown, it just becomes a farm. Uh, and then under the plow zone, we find this, this subsoil. And so the layers could be sorted out and dated that way. 
uh, with careful digging. And it takes experience to see these things. Um, and it's, it, I think it's more, you know, in a way, it's more of an art than a science, uh, much more of an art. It's, a, it's color and texture and uh, things that um, are hard to quantify. And so, therefore, I don't think that science can do that. Uh, anyway, that's another topic. How did you uh, find and date the East Wall and North Bulwark, especially given the discrepancies with uh, William Strachey's uh, description, which I think was your fort model? And then this is a two-part question. Second part, um, why did a test search trench 40 feet from the 1617 well where your model predicted the fort, the west, the fort west wall would be, in fact, revealed said wall? I'll go to the second part that I can remember right now. Um, we did. We uh, were able to trace a wall along the river until it actually went into the river. So there was a piece of this board that had washed away. Then the trick was, and we found an east wall. It wasn't that clear, but it was an east wall. We were saying we're, we're speculating. We're um, that's a, a, a basing our decisions from there on that that was the east wall. So we. It, it wasn't clear exactly how big the fort was or if the dimensions given were, were accurate. Uh, so we went beyond into the west looking uh, for this trench, this palisade trench going north, and found a well. And that was interesting, and so we excavated that. We found it had been filled in probably uh, after 1610, maybe later, uh, based on the artifacts that were thrown into it after it was abandoned. And that's, there's a pattern to that. We found several wells, and that's what happens to them. So anyway, um, then we felt, well, the Civil War fort is sitting on uh, undis- undisturbed proper land, except for the plow zone. So we began working to the east, we moved, in some cases, 10 feet of fill on top of where we found the undisturbed layer uh, that dated back to the 17th century. And we luck would have it, we were digging too far. I thought the well was maybe in the center that we found, and it would have been a, made the fort huge, you know, but if, that, if the well is in the center. But going back and just double checking, we did find a piece of a palisade that we traced out for two or three years under the fort, under, under the, excuse me, the Civil War period, earthwork fort. So anything that, as it turned out, any signs of, the, of James Fort that this earthwork was built upon was, was more or less preserved Whereas outside of that, to get the dirt to pile it up for the Civil War fort, uh, that area was graded down. So we found this well, and it was about one inch down to the brick lining from the 17th century. And that's because the top soil and the plowsum and all that was had been graded away or taken, that dirt was taken in to build up the other fort. So that's, um, and once we found the West Wall, it was you know, a piece of cake. Um, if possible, uh, can you 
please provide a couple of examples of evidence and artifacts from James Fort structures, such as the barracks, you know, like starving time food remains, the quarter, the factory, including that the dungeon, um, the row houses and gentlemen burials, and the Smithfield well, uh, fifty feet outside the West Wall cellars, uh, and then the building sites that um, revealed evidence of a Native American president presence in the fort. I thought that was especially interesting. So, just provide a couple of examples of evidence and artifacts from uh, James Fort structures. Well, we found, I think it's a total of nine uh, structures that have been built inside the fort. At not all the exact same time, but several that were built immediately. And one was, we think of barracks, because it was 20 by 50. That's a big building. Uh, how do you know? Well, the, the postal pattern made a rectangle that was 20 feet by 50 feet long. There was some evidence of a chimney in there, although it was wooden, if you can believe there is such a thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, so this was in the beginning, Jamestown was a military base. So you'd begin to find things like a barracks um, where you put the troops. Uh, and then we found footprints of the blacksmith shop, which was established according to record right away uh, in 1607, 68. Uh, and uh, it, it was below ground. And that was really, really uh, uh, interesting because that's the first iron working uh, in English America. <clears throat> and uh, then inside an, another post pattern that showed where the, the church, the first church was. So I was wrong about the tower. This is 40 feet to the uh, outside beyond that. Uh, and uh, but that <clears throat> going to record, we knew the size and we in the postal pattern made that size. We found four graves in a place which would have been the chancel. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the kind of evidence that was turned up. And then the pieces put together on a master map. And now we have, excuse me, now we have uh, a map of the fort pretty much done. I mean, it's about 90% excavated that, either never was made an exact specific map <clears throat> or of the plan, of the, what we call the first town plan in a sense. Uh, and um, uh, by, by putting all these pieces together through the years. And the second part of your question is, I can't remember. Yeah, just a couple of examples of artifacts that you found, like the Native American presence, the dungeon, etc. That's really important. So what we found uh, were the fact, it, it must be the case that Jamestown, there were many buildings built in, in, a, in a well sunk in the center for But uh, diff, uh, Jamestown was heading t- towards a disaster. And by 1609, this is a couple of years after the, the forts established, uh, going into the uh, in 1609, about three or 400 people come in with no real provisions because they'd been hit by a hurricane and they'd been all spoiled. And there was very little food anyway for the people that were already there. Uh, and started into a winter time. Uh, there, there's uh, studies have shown that there was a, a major drought going on during that time. So even the Indians were suffering from 
they couldn't get any food from the Indians, and they actually besieged the fort and wouldn't let the settlers out, at least off the island, to hunt and fish. So they couldn't do that. Um, then disease hit, and then there was bad water in the well. Uh, the, the salinity levels uh, go up as the salt water from the river begins to creep in. At first, the wells are drawing on groundwater, which is uh, fresh water, and then that's kind of driven out. By as more you use the well, the more in comes the salt. Uh, so it was kind of like a perfect storm for starvation. And at the end of that year, of sixteen nine, there were only there was sixty left alive, according to one account, out of maybe five hundred, maybe two hundred and twenty. Depends how you count it. Uh, had had all these people had just starved to death. Uh, and um, in fact, it, things were so bad that when the, uh, the governor finally came in from having been shipwrecked on Bermuda uh, in the spring of 1610, they spent a week or two looking for food, couldn't find it. So he packed up everybody that was left, and that weren't, it wasn't very many, but he had people with him too. Uh, and they start sailing down to leave, down the James. Well, miraculously, or not, depending on how they would consider it, uh, the company had realized that they needed to really supply these people or they you know, they would die. Well, they were dying. So uh, in came uh, under the a command of, of Lord Delaware, Sir Thomas West, who was a real governor sent by the company. The, the other leaders were not really authorized much to do much. And... <clears throat> So they came in with healthy people, soldiers to help, uh, provisions for a year, 1610. And so the company who had left started, had left the island, had left the island going down the river, sailed back. And I always think to myself, boy, uh, but they were excited to come back to that place. They came back uh, and the colony uh, from that point on would be permanent. So it is true that this is the first permanent English settlement. Uh, in in uh, North America, at least, uh, from that point on. Uh, there were other starving times and other problems, but never as bad as that one year. And how we know that is the well was filled in, all the cellars from the buildings we had found were all filled in with uh, material that had been accumulating during the start, starving time. It's pretty clear. Because in it were butchered horses, dogs, bones, um, uh, uh, you know, um, snakes, rats, things that wouldn't be on in, on the menu normally, uh, would it? So uh, during the starving time, they're eating everything, including occasionally each other. So anyway, in these pits, uh, when so many people are dying, all of their positions, possessions that they brought with them are just trashed and thrown away. So the next thing we knew is when we dug into a, the, the original storage cellar uh, well, we came up with over 500,000 artifacts from that first three years that were just, you know, they're, they're usable and we're still usable and thrown away. So it's military, you know, weapons and uh, pottery, uh, glass, glassware, uh, things, some things not even broken, you know, I just goodbye. Uh, and we found that in 
that cellar well. Then we dug and found another cellar that is dug into the dirt, uh, down for some feet now, uh, a kitchen that, uh, according to record, was uh, built in 16-8. We didn't know where or what, what it would mean to, but there was this pattern, and there was a cellar, and in it was um, more of these uh, of this material that apparently De- Delaware said he came in and he cleansed the town. Well, he probably got rid of everything that would remind anybody of the starting time, and that he threw him in these cellars, and they quit building like that. They started building above ground where it wouldn't get wet. So... In that cellar were the butchered bones and horses and other things, just like the other ones. And there were several like that, um, building cellars, that is. And uh, and in this, in one of the layers is where we found uh, Jane, who I've already mentioned. I've already mentioned her, which is quite shocking in a sense. For our listeners, um, can you? Before we get to Jane, can you uh, brief, briefly address the estimation and attempted skeletal DNA matching of the remains of a man who most likely was the Virginia Company's uh, Captain Bartholomew Gosnold, who died in August 1607, um, found near the 1617 well outside the West Wall uh, near additional burials? Well, as we were looking for the west wall and, and found this shallow, uh, shallowly buried well, we found uh, what looked like another well. Uh, there was a circular deposit of oyster shells buried. So we started digging that to see if that <clears throat> would say more about the fort. And we began to see a soil stain. It was about two by six rectangular that looked grave-like uh, underneath all these shells. And so well, that's interesting. So we said, well, we're gonna, we need to excavate this to see if that's going to lead us to any more evidence of the fort. And as we dug down, we found a, a uh, it looked like a spear. It had a metal point on it and, a, and where a wooden uh, uh, hand, or handle had a spear uh, like object had been laid down and buried. And then under that, we found evidence of a coffin. And under that, we found uh, the remains of a male who died at age about 35. You can tell that by bone de- uh, development in, in remarkably preserved st- uh, state, which I think the oyster shells had something to do with the calcium. But um, that well, who was this? And at the time, we felt that this he was buried with this ceremonial staff laid on the coffin. So, come to find out, um, one record suggested, and now I've, re- I've re-looked at this again, but anyway, suggested that this is something a captain would carry, uh, like in front of the head of the troops, with his captain's leading staff. So here's the captain... Uh, in the fill, there's, there's, it's clean fills, we call it. Somebody went in really quickly. And we know that, I always know that Bartholomew Gosnold, the, the first leading prime mover of the whole uh, settlement originally, died in, in uh, August 22nd, 1607. So he didn't last long at Jamestown. Uh, and I thought, well, who could, could this be? So we had, had been working with the 
America's foremost forensic anthropologist, Dr. Douglas Alsey at the Smithsonian. So brought, he comes down and looks at these and analyzes what he sees. And he said, well, according to bone development here, this person died at age 35 or 36 because he's in such good shape. You can see, you can really tell uh, of that he would be about that in that range. And well, the records indicated that Gosnell died at age 36. Well, I thought that was pretty interesting. And then I thought, well, is there any way that can DNA survive? And I'd read that it can, you know, ancient DNA. And Doug said, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it can. And I said, well, let's take this as far as we can to see if we can <clears throat> um, if we can identify this person. So DNA tests were done. It was found. It was minimal and degraded. But according to the lab that he works with, it was enough to uh, that uh, if we could find a a living relative, maternal line that is from Gosnold's uh, mother down from him down to the present, uh, then we could identify. It was it's called mitochondrial DNA, and that we could possibly. Identify well. There are some great genealogical researchers in England, and contacted them. They did the best they could, but they couldn't go. But maybe two generations forward from Gosnell's sister and his niece, who would have the mitochondrial DNA if if they if we had it. So, make a long story short. Finally, got permission from the Church of England to test two of these these two grave two graves that appeared to be where the sister and niece were buried in churches, and that was a long process of getting permission, as you might mm-hmm. imagine. But anyway, to go and get samples from where they're most likely to be buried, so we did. Uh, brought the sample of, of the the we couldn't find the niece actually, but we did find. Uh, the sister we thought brought that back same lab did the test they looked at the DNA and it said it does not match and so what do you do with that well that's really a problem because is this really the sister she wasn't labeled Um, or is this really Gosnell and so uh, if it matches it's great but if it doesn't it's just all kinds of questions about you know is this who is this person? But it was worth doing because uh, now we're, we're doing it uh, uh, extensively on other burials and it's getting more and more sophisticated. <clears throat> In fact, a male line can be traced, which we couldn't do at that time that I understood. Uh, so at any rate, um, we still think we've got Gosnold and there was a, a test called the stable isotopes where you could tell from the teeth uh, where a, a region where people were when they were growing up and their teeth were being formed in early years, and that said that this our burial did come from that region of Suffolk, England, where we tested for the for the sister. So that you know that's an indication that we've got the right person. 
But now we're gonna, we're still we're going to do another test. Then we'll see. And I, one other thing I want to speak to you had mentioned the presence of Indian material in the fort. That's probably the most surprising discovery of this project, other than finding the fort and finding a Campbell. Yeah, I thought that was really compelling. Yeah, um, the in with the English material, not anything that was buried before they got here, got to Virginia, uh, were these thousands and thousands of, of Powhatan Indian artifacts, uh, many of which were um, things that show that they, whoever was here were making traditional Indian beadwork, pottery all over the place. Uh, the most extensive collection by far that's ever been found in any any Virginia Indian site. So it was obvious that there that there were um, uh, uh, Virginia Indians on both sides of that palisade, and they lived. And with the, and they were they were camp followers, I guess. They these are all men. There's you know the women are usually the ones that make the pottery and the beads. So you know they were in there. Uh, it, it suggests strongly. Uh, and that's a different outlook on on uh, the them and us uh, story of America, you know, early America. It, it, uh, it, it's just more, as we always say, it's just more complicated than that. Please provide evidence that the settlers followed or somewhat followed Virginia Company directives. Let me see. There's a list in the book that I thought um, you could kind of – Strike them off wherever they they could. I think they did geographically. Again, they were supposed to go 100 miles up the river, and they couldn't do it. The ge- geography wasn't right, so uh, they compromised and they went to an island and to settle. Um, they were. Uh, uh, no, I got got to get my list up. Okay, here we go. Um, their location again. I mentioned they they, they chose an island. But they were supposed to find a wholesome and fertile place. Well, Jamestown uh, Island, there's a, there's an awful lot of low ground here that are marsh, and that is a very wholesome, and that was a problem to them. Um, for defense, there they they chose an island, um, and uh, they did uh, settle on a major river, so there was transportation for defense. Um, the scouts should be stationed at the river mouth, but they put a put another settlement down at, at the Chesapeake Bay entrance. And the um, they were also told that it, it, if there are any deaths, that you got to hide it from from the Indians finding out because they'll they'll see that you're one thing mortal and another thing you're in trouble. So um, we found the first summer burial ground was right inside the fort, which is really not what um, Western civilization from Roman times anyway would do that, but they were doing that to hide them out. And then uh, they were told to plant. We found uh, evidence of planting roads and farming. Um, uh, There's a whole list in the book about the cultivation, the economy, and the governance, and, and where they followed, and where they didn't, uh, and did they, did they, how, how diligently did they, did they follow that? And I would say that um, uh, they, 
English into this foreign environment, this hostile environment, um, began changing their their customs and their society uh, almost immediately. So these are Americans um, or Englishmen inventing uh, Americans. You know, I mean, it, that's how you're going to have to live in this whole different part of the world. Uh, it's so different than England. Uh, and the climate and, you know, the fauna and the flora and everything is just alien to them. Uh, and so um, uh, the company, of course, they're sitting over safe and sound in London uh, trying to figure out what to tell these guys. And, um, and they're over here being realistic, real, realistic and trying to stay alive. But wherever they could, I could see that they were following the instructions. Can you uh, briefly uh, discuss the uh, 1608 Anglican Church in the fort, um, as well as those uh, four chancel burials? Um, um, and how did you match the high-status men um, um, who perished during the church's existence uh, with the burials, two of which if I recall, featured anthropomorphic uh, coffins and a Catholic uh, reliquary. Well, one of the major discoveries has been uh, the finding of the first church. I'll call it the first real church. Uh, and that was found by looking at these soil uh, discolorations, these huge uh, holes that have been dug to put in huge posts uh, to uh, establish the, the largest building footprint that we found uh, in the fort. Pretty much in the center, and um, and the other reason we think it, well, one reason we thought it was important is that there is documentary evidence. I mean, uh, was the church because there's documentary evidence how big the church was, and it was twenty four by sixteen. Well, that's what this pattern made. And then, and the on the eastern end, there were four graves we found, and that would be. Uh, uh, Staying with English custom, that the high the higher ups would be buried in the chancel, uh, the leaders. So then uh, we excavated and found uh, the human remains in four in four of these burials, uh, and uh, by the artifacts and the way uh, they were buried uh, and their ages at death, which could be determined forensically pretty well, uh, it began to point to four individuals that we know died during the time that this church stood there, and it didn't stand long. It was only there about eight years. So amongst us four were uh, uh, two captains, a knight, and a cleric. Uh, the, the the minister, uh, and so we feel that looking at at other evidence in each one of the burials, like the shape of the coffins of two of them, uh, suggested these are very high end folks, and they actually could well be relatives of the governor that was sent over here, Sir Thomas West. Uh, they're both Wests uh, in, connected. Uh, and then in one, we found on the, on the actual, on the coffin. And the coffins are just stains in the ground with nail patterns. Uh, we found a, um, a small silver, as it turned out, box 
that had something in it. You could tell it was rattling, and we picked it up, and it had been set on the coffin, not in it. So obviously the individual in the coffin couldn't have put it on the coffin. So um, we felt that we this might be the clue to who it is. And through many tests and uh, high-powered <clears throat> um, cat scanning, we were able to see what was in it without opening it. It did have a little, it had a little door on it, but it, it, it was corroded shut, and we didn't want to break the object. But anyway, the cat scan was told us that it would have would contain five splinters of human bone and a small vessel of pears made of lead that was broken in half. That would have had, by tradition, and we're going back to look at English tradition, um, would have holy water. Uh, and the bones would be considered bones of a saint. And together, that makes what's called a reliquary, which is super common in the Catholic religion, but not in the Church of England, because that was all reformed, as you know, in the middle of the 16th century. <clears throat> so that was surprising. Uh, so here is a Catholic, and there was a, a captain's leading staff broken in there, too, in that same burial. So we think uh, that it was... Uh, and we'll go too far in the name, but we've got a name for them all. And he was, this was a captain as well. Uh, and uh, so with forensic science and other science here, uh, stabilized tubes, DNA, DNA, one test, uh, since the book was written actually, um, points the fact that the two Wests that we thought were the Wests do have a similar, one of the tests says it's a similar DNA pattern. So that's reassuring that we know who they are. And then the final person uh, was buried just in a, rap, a winding shroud. And he um, was probably Reverend Robert Hunt, who would be buried very humble. He was a humble guy. And he, kept, he held the colony together. And he died at the time that he could have been buried in that church. And the other reason we think it's a cleric is that he was buried uh uh, east to west, that is, his his head is at the east end of the of the, of the body, uh, and then there was another one, the same one, the, the reliquary guy, same way. And according to one record I have, it's called ancient English tradition uh, that only clerics are buried with their head to the east, uh, laying towards the east, and uh, everyone else is laying towards the west. And there's some explanation for that, but we'll get into it anyway. Um, it's in it's in the book, and um, so we think that the reliquary guy had is Captain Gabriel Archer, who was who landed in 1607, went back to England, came back, uh, and may have become a lay priest. And there were Catholicism may have been more common here that people have thought in the past within the church people sort of hanging on to their tradition going to the they have to go to church every day here um still going to the anglican church but you know they got their their, their connection with god physical connections that is so common with other uh, catholics so we've arrived at jane uh, 14-year-old Jane. Who was Jane? How did you find her in the storehouse cellar? And uh, 
why and how did forensic anthropologists conclude that uh, she had experienced postmortem uh, cannibalism, possibly as the storied powdered wife? Well, the cannibalism story is part of the starving time, 69, 1610 story. Uh, and there it's mentioned by <clears throat> the resident governor who was eyewitness and a couple of other, and John Smith who wasn't there, but he wrote about it. Uh, and some, some other company officials who, I don't think they were there in, in, at the time, but anyway, there was the accounts that said that some, a few people resorted to cannibalism. And then there's a story of a man that killed his wife uh, and was caught with, uh, she had been, this is kind of gross, um, dismembered, uh, and and he just said, well, no, look, I'm, this is starting time, she just died. Well, he was executed because he had murdered her. And and so whether or not that's part of cannibalism or not. But what we found was a mutilated human skull and a severed leg bone in this starving time layer in, uh, in, one, in one of the cellars. So in looking at the forensic evidence of what someone did to this skull, it is no doubt in my mind, this is one of the most uh, uh, sure discoveries besides the fort of what we found is that all of the soft tissue, including her brain, was removed by knife cutting and chopping and processing just like you would an animal. The same with the leg bone. Uh, so and it turns out that you could forensically tell this is a 14, 14 to 15 year old girl Stable isotopes say she was English, that she was from the south, south, um, uh, the southern coast, maybe, of England. But what she ate uh, probably came over with the 300 plus or 400 people that came in right before the starving time and basically caused it. It probably didn't live very long. Uh, so, but there's evidence that she was already dead. When this was done, she wasn't killed, to eat. and they weren't doing that. It's just one guy. Um, that was that was really taboo, you know. Uh, cannibalism, not really, um, but it makes you. To me, it's, it gives me empathy to what it was like to be a James. Really, really like to be a Jamestown. It materializes the story. Um, it's not how they survived uh, at all, uh, but the conditions. Uh, were just sort of unthought of by the company that sent them over. And it didn't happen again, according to record, and we haven't found any evidence of it. So uh, uh, it's it's just a lesson, you know, that uh, this establishing a colony is a is is a very complicated endeavor, and it's. I see a lot of parallels now, and I won't go there completely, but we're talking about going to Mars. Well, there's a, there's a hostile environment for you <laughs> and how long it takes and all that kind of thing. But that's not a, an easy thing to do either. And this is kind of that, that was going on. Uh, imagine the, the, the English didn't know what was on the other side of the ocean, really, um, what they would get into, and, and then adapted, but... In one case, they didn't adapt fast enough. 
What were uh, some of the causes of, of the cannibalism uh, during the starving time? And was Jane one of the poorer sort? There are a couple names, but I don't think there's not enough evidence to say what it is. But right now, DNA is, uh, data bank, as I understand it, in England, are beginning to see uh, that certain regions and, and villages, um, towns, uh, which people don't really move away from <laughs> over centuries, and um, that they have certain DNA, DNA patterns uh, that we may be able to uh, to find. Uh, so the, this research, I'm working on a third book. <laughs> the research never ends. You know, I mean, it's one uh, evidence comes up and, and it'll lead you somewhere else. And it, to me, it is so similar to a crime scene investigation, modern, a very cold case, obviously, uh, but a case and, and try to look for the physical evidence tell you what happened uh, in the past. And it's a lot of it's speculation, but you do uh, have evidence that begins to point to to logical conclusions. And I guess the reader is the jury. And I try to put all that evidence into the book, say, well, it's this way, it could be this, but it could be that. Uh, and 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 leave it up to uh, the reader to decide. What about this? Is sort of a follow up to that. Uh, what about the uh, slate um, that included uh, words and images, um, including uh, Harriet evidence of Harriet uh, Algonquin phonetics in the sixteen oh eight to nine well? And why did you attribute? Do you attribute the slate to uh, William Strachey, or do you attribute it to many people? as well as perhaps the cotton pipe stems? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that several people, the, the, the buried slate. To me, I was so excited. I'm a historian, and I, that's like finding a book. You know, it, it was written on this piece of writing slate uh, <clears throat> over many long time period, or different people, as you can see different angles that they were holding it with when they were making drawings of birds and um, uh, other animals, uh, trees, uh, text, uh, um, you know, sentences, all of these things are jumbled onto it. Uh, and in one case, there are three rampant lions, lions on their back legs in a pose that is typical of a coat of arms. In fact, the English coat of arms has a rampant lion on one side. So, uh, I don't think they were trying to, to, to uh, whoever was writing on that uh, was doing it uh, to uh, say it's British, but probably uh, I was thinking uh, the coat of arms, the crest of William Strachey, who, who wrote one of the most complete descriptions of the fort and uh, descriptions of a shipwreck that Shakespeare apparently used for the Tempest play. Uh, that seemed to point to him and he had been shipwrecked in Bermuda and on his slate are drawings of a palmetto tree or, or I think it's a palmetto tree um, and then a, a type of bird that only only uh, lives in Bermuda it's called a cahal we found those bones here by the way uh, they used them they, they ate them uh, when they when 
the group of settlers came from Bermuda via a shipwreck to Jamestown. So here, you know, I think, uh, and then there's a there's a sentence at the end that said, "I am not of the finest sort," and it's sort of lamenting. It seems to me, um, and you can see in William Strachey's life that. He ran around with people like Shakespeare and was with the higher ups, but in the end, he thought he was going to inherit a lot of money from his father, and his father died broke, so he didn't. And so I could just see him writing that down, there, you know, perhaps. But again, um, the reader be be the jury. Is, is this enough evidence to say who this is? I'm not saying just saying it's possible uh, or probable, I should say. In this case, probable because you have several pieces of evidence lining up. So we try to come go from the possible to the probable and and lay out the evidence. Uh, and in any case, it's all to me. It all materializes a story that's only basically had only been known uh, uh, intellectually uh, by words, but it's places and. I guess we archaeologists put together the scenery of a play, or not a play, but you know what I mean, the action, uh, where the script is incomplete, the written script, uh, but the atmosphere, the scene, is reconstructed uh, from the physical evidence that is left from whatever action took place. Thank you for being on the show. The uh, book is uh, Jamestown, The Truth Revealed, um, out by uh, University of Virginia Press. Um, On behalf of uh, Dr. William Kelso, the New Books Network, the Archaeology Channel, this is Ryan Tripp. Tune in next time. Mm